And very often after someone is canonized or that they are made a saint, that uh, there are all kinds of stories that arise about things they did and accomplishments and so on. And one of those stories is that Francis of Assisi, when he was on a pilgrimage journey, he drew aside and he went to a tree that was filled with birds, and he preached to the birds. And then he returned to his group and he referred to them as his sisters. Another such story is that there was a village that was under the attack of a cruel wolf, and it threatened children, and people were filled with fear. But Francis of Assisi befriended the wolf and went up into that mountain and found him, befriended him, and with the sign of the cross took away the savage nature of that animal, and it was no longer a threat to the people. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher, and I thank you for being a part of the program. May the Lord bless you today as we move to the pulpit ministry of our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale. And today we're dealing with 1 Peter 1 on the history of popes. We're looking at the matter of Francis, the present pope taking the name of Francis of Assisi. Why did he do that? What does it mean? And what is the whole papacy? So stay tuned for that message. And at the end of that, we'll also have another part of Hugh Farrell's testimony. He is the converted Carmelite monk who came out of the Church of Rome through the light of the gospel and had a mission work for his own people. Thank God the gospel brings men and women to light, to the knowledge of the Savior, not to the enslavement of empty vain religion. And of course, we're on the air here each day to bring you the message of the gospel, and we hope that you'll join with us uh, each morning at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. as we bring the message of the gospel here in the Vancouver area from our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale. Now, you can, of course, go to our website for all the information, and that website is www.cloverdalefpc.ca. May the Lord stir your heart as we turn now to God's Word on First Peter chapter 1. If we're going to give these titles to anyone, we're going to give them to our Lord Jesus. And it was for this reason that the Reformers, some hundreds of years later, recognized the papacy and whatever pope of the day as the Antichrist, taking upon him names and claims which belong to our Savior. And they rejected the papacy as anti opposite to and unacceptable to biblical thinking people. Now, this is no mean thing. The claims of the Pope and the papacy, the whole system that they attribute to their leader, they crown him with what is called the tiara, a threefold crown with a threefold title. He is referred to as the King of Heaven, the King of Earth, and the King of under the earth. He has in his hands the powers 
of men's destiny as that threefold king. And it attributes to this papal leader, the one who is appointed by the cardinals as the head of the church, given this threefold title, a massive authority that no one can resist, no one can appeal against or refuse. And so he comes onto the world stage as this uh, godlike, angel-like, uh, this high priest, this king of kings and lord of lords. And if you've noticed, when kings and queens enter into the audience of the pope, the queen, the lady in particular, were well black. The queen has done that. Laureen Harper has done that. When, when she and, 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 uh, uh, and our prime minister had an audience with the pope recently, and you see the pictures. And anyone that meets the pope, whether he is political figure, religious figure, meets the pope as an inferior, never as an equal. And that includes to Rick Warren, the uh, evangelical uh, who was invited along to participate. Anyone who has an audience of the pope of another religion is an inferior, never accepted as an equal because of these vast claims of the Pope. Now, our time's running on, and I want to move to the uh, claim of being the successor of Peter, because if that's wrong, everything just falls apart. And I think that here is our strongest and most biblical uh, position to reject uh, the Pope Francis or Jorge uh, Mario uh, Bergoglia as this uh, man sent from God in God's place on earth, king of heaven, king of earth, and king under the earth. How can this man from the streets of San Paulo in Argentina take on this mighty rule? He claims to be the successor of Peter. Well, if it's true, we'll find it in the Bible, if he is really the successor of Peter. Now, in church politics or church polity, maybe I should back up from that word politics. There's always people things in, in church life. But in church government, we usually go to Acts chapter 15 to, to try and figure out who's who. And you have in Acts 15 a church council at play. And the elders, the apostles are meeting and they are determining some serious issues. One of the major ones is, should uh, Jews who are converted continue to practice circumcision? And they have a church council. Now, if Peter is the first pope, as Rome claims, from which all others are successors, then we would expect to see in Acts chapter 15 that Peter is the chairman. But he's not. It's James who's the chairman. We would expect that Peter has the concluding remarks, but he doesn't. And it seems that they all speak, ministers and elders. And while they resolve the situation and make certain decrees, put them in writing and send them off to the churches, Peter is not a head figure, but rather an equal amongst these other apostles. Peter himself, and we read here this uh, first chapter, uh, when he introduces himself, 
He does not say that uh, he is in Rome. He's an apostle to the Jews that are scattered. And you'll notice, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Peter's ministry was not to Gentiles primarily, but to Jews and Jewish converts. And we see that in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Now, you'll notice that the, he is writing to these who are in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So where did he write from? If you go to the end of the, the book of 1 Peter, you would expect maybe that he will say, written from Rome. Not so. Not so. But rather, he says, the church that it is Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. And there are those who convinced that Peter wrote this from that part of the world and not in Rome. Mind you, I've heard somebody saying this is a figurative term for Rome, but I don't think that is at all possible. Peter was never in Rome. People of Rome were not Jews. They were converts, although there had been a Jewish colony in Rome. Eleven times in the New Testament, Peter is referred to. Not once is Peter linked to the city of Rome as residing there or ministering there. The Church of Rome voice upon the public that Peter was resident in Rome for about 25 years, ministered there, and died there in the vicinity of Rome. In this same book, and I'll not take the time to read the quotes, Dr. Botner quotes about a professor who refers to two archaeologists, and one of them spent 40 years attempting with the mandate from the Church of Rome to prove Peter was living, dwelling, ministering, and died in Rome. Find bones. Find some artifact. Find some document. Find some piece of history. Find something written or recorded somewhere, maybe in the catacombs. And for 40 years, an Italian archaeologist attempted, and he would have been rewarded handsomely if he had found hard evidence, but he could find none. And there is no proof that Peter ever resided or ministered in Rome. There's an awful lot of proof that he ministered in Antioch. That would be Asia Minor. And that he ministered to those who were of a Jewish bent. And so this claim that he is the first pope and all popes are the successors of Peter really is, is very foreign. It's very strange to the Bible. Another thing we find that Peter was corrected by the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 2, a controversy arose again over circumcision, and Peter weakened, and he uh, sided with some zealous Jews, and Paul withstood him to the face and said, Peter, you're wrong. And you can read that account in Galatians chapter 2 of how Paul did not look upon him as some superior that ought to be bowed down to, and so on. Also in 1 Peter 5, 1, I think there's a very interesting statement here. Peter refers to himself as an elder, and he talks about elders, plural, and he says, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. He doesn't say pope, doesn't even say bishop. 
although bishop would be correct and acceptable, but pope, that he is the chief among the father of all the apostles? No, nothing even close to that. The present Pope Francis, you know, I have to go back a little bit. In this book, whoever was the Pope of the day was Pope number 266. That is in the line of popes claimed by the papacy, right up to um, 300 and something, uh, and then up to Gregory and so on. And what the Church of Rome has done, they've backtracked, they've backfilled. And so they start with the, the first head of the church, given the title pope, and then they go back. And the first ten popes they claim are dubious. They are fillers. They are an attempt to draw a straight line and a lineage from Peter right down to every pope since. Now, that is fraught with all kinds of problems, especially when pre-Reformation days when there were three popes supposedly reigning at one time, and one denounced the other as an anti-pope, and they had to battle it out in words, if not with swords. Uh, so this claim that there's a direct line from Peter all the way down to Francis is certainly a total, total stretch of historic attempt to make Peter, uh, or the present pope, the successor of Peter. The real issue tonight, and I've only got a few minutes to mention this, the real issue does the present-day pope preach what Peter taught? Is his ministry, is his gospel the same gospel as Peter presented in the Bible in God's Word? I wanted to read chapter 1 because it, told, it tells the story of Peter's writing that we are redeemed not by silver and gold, but by the precious blood. Peter preached the gospel of one sacrifice— the blood of the Lord Jesus, not by silver and gold. You go to a Roman Catholic Mass, and it's about buying pardons, buying indulgences. I went to a Roman Catholic cathedral in Dublin a few years ago, and I saw the people coming in buying candles to say prayers. There's hardly an act of worship in the Church of Rome that is not associated with money and payment, silver and gold. But the gospel is free. It is by free grace, because it was accomplished at the cross. Peter offered to men certain hope of eternal life. And if you look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness— through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith. 1 Peter 1.3. Let me go back to that. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God through faith. Peter believed in the doctrine of assurance of salvation. The Roman church offers no final assurance to its devotees because there's purgatory, because there are masses for the dead that they may be brought out of purgatory. 
And people are said, you've got to offer masses for your dear mother and father. Don't you love them? And this mass will cost you so much. And if you bring your candle and pay the mass, the priest will pray, and somehow purgatory will be lessened. And there's no one in the Roman Catholic faith that dies with the absolute assurance of eternal life immediately with God. Not even popes. It is a scheme of fear, a scheme that withholds that absolute assurance of eternal life. The question is asked, are Roman Catholics saved? Well, I agree with this. In regards to the question, are Catholics saved? There is a more difficult question to answer, and it's impossible to give a universal statement on the salvation of all members of any denomination in Christianity. Are all Baptists saved? Are all Presbyterians in the world saved? Are all Lutherans saved? And I think we have to ask, are all free Presbyterians saved? Even they are born into the church, even they go through with all the rites of the church, we would say they need to be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Salvation is determined by personal faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, not in titles of a denomination. And there are Roman Catholics that may have the knowledge of the gospel, and there may be those who are going to heaven in spite of what the church teaches and practices. We can accept that the Spirit of God can enlighten men and women through the Word of God, through the Bible, in spite of the system and the false teaching. Now, to be saved, of course, we need to confess our sins directly to the Lord Jesus, not to priests, not to Mary, not in a confessional. We need to believe that Christ died for the total price of sin, and there's no more to be added to it, and a Roman Catholic would need to come to that knowledge. To be saved, you need to follow the promises of God's Word, not the rituals of the church. We know that baptism, water alone, does not save. And in Roman Catholic theology, the last rites, or extreme unction, do not save. Peter was not an environmentalist. We have heard this particular Pope Francis speak at great lengths about the environment and environmentalism and ecology and saving the planet and so on. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, 7, you will see that Peter exhorted that man would prepare for the day when the heavens and the earth will be set on fire, and this will be God's wrath upon a wicked world. And Peter warned that because of man's sin, God is going to destroy this earth again, not by water, not by a flood, but by fire reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And then verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? On that day, materialism will not count. On that day, forests will not count. They're going to be burned up. On that day, 
all the issues of environmentalism will not count. Doesn't mean we destroy the planet. Doesn't mean we leave a mess for our next generation. But environmentalism is not the gospel. It's not what the work of the church is about. And to take the name of Francis, because you're going to take a leaf out of one who was the patron saint of animals and the environment, is really an attempt to try and lock into the environmentalist movement and gain some kind of credibility for the church. Peter preached about a new heaven and a new earth. And praise God, one day this cursed world will end. All the sin of it, all the sodomy of it, all the ungodliness and the uncleanness. And there will be a heaven and earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That was Peter's preaching, Peter's ministry. And he was obviously saying, prepare, looking for that day, preparing for that day. And that's the ministry that we must be about. It will be the land where we will live in holiness unto the Lord, and we shall be like him. This is the message that we preach. And Peter could stand in this pulpit and take over and say, Ian, let me read my words. Let me preach this gospel far better than you can, and let me take over. But do you think that Peter could step into the Vatican and say, let me take over? something wrong. What has happened in the Vatican is a lie, a deceit, and is a, a device that will destroy souls, not bring people to the knowledge of the Savior and preparing them for that day when judgment will fall. And that's the work we must be about. During this period of my training, I was practicing how to celebrate Mass. It takes months to learn the rubrics and ritual of the Mass. Many times while practicing, I would ask myself if I believed that after my final ordination to the priesthood, I would have the power to command God to come down upon the altar. According to the teaching of the Roman Church, the priest, no matter how unworthy he may personally be, even if he has just made a pact with the devil for his soul, has the power to change the elements of bread and wine into the actual body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, provided he pronounces the words of consecration properly and has the intention of consecrating. God must come down on the altar and enter and take over the elements. The more I thought about this power claimed by the Roman Church for the priests, the less I believed in such a power. Repeatedly, I went to my father confessor and told him about my doubts. His only answer was that I must have patience. He told me that even if I did not believe in anything that the Roman Church taught, it would be all right for me to be a priest, provided that I would faithfully teach what they wanted me to teach. He said, Your own personal faith has nothing to do with it. You are merely a tool in the hands of Mother Church for the propagation of the faith. Be loyal to the Roman Catholic faith, and all will come out well in the end. However, that was not to be the case. Daily my doubts increased. The superiors noticed my attitude and surmised that I had problems, but did nothing about it. As a matter of fact, the high superior, the father provincial, hated me. 
He realized that I knew that he was not a learned man. He pretended to great learning and sanctity and professed neither. He was determined to break and destroy me if possible. Fortunately, the local prior, Father Edward, was my friend and protected me, even at the cost of incurring the wrath of the provincial. Finally, I lost faith completely in the Roman Church and its invented dogmas. I ceased to care whether the superiors found out about my loss of faith or not. During the months that followed, I many times considered leaving the order. But I knew that if I stepped out of the order, I would, in conscience, have to leave the Roman Catholic Church. I knew very little of the claims of Protestantism. The only books that I had been allowed to study were those written by Roman Catholic authors. And these had so perverted and distorted the teachings of God and the Protestant theologians as to paint them to be tools of Satan. I did not know where to turn, but I placed my faith in God. I knew that he would not desert me in my time of trial. At length, on 2nd of August, 1940, I realized that for a long time I had not believed in the peculiar doctrines of the Roman Church such as transubstantiation, auricular confession, confession to a priest to be given by him personally, and the infallibility of the Pope, that when he is speaking in his official capacity concerning faith and morals, he cannot err. I knew that to remain in the monastery would be impossible. The life is difficult enough when one believes all that the Roman Church teaches. When that life is lost, Life as a friar monk becomes intolerable. I had completed my theological education and knew that I could never again hold the faith of a Roman Catholic. Therefore, without letting anyone know, I resolved to leave the monastery and to do it that very afternoon. I was very careful. The Father Provincial, when my enemy was visiting the monastery to which I was attached, I knew that if he became suspicious, and thought that I intended to leave, he would have a Roman Catholic medical doctor sign commitment papers and place me in a mental institution under the control of the Roman Church. This may sound far-fetched to those who know kindly Roman Catholics, but I can assure you that in America, Ireland, and many other countries, there are hundreds of priests and monks in mental hospitals who are there simply because they lost faith in the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church and wanted to leave. While the fathers were taking their afternoon siesta, I quietly slipped out by the back door and fled to the YMCA in San Antonio for protection. I knew that the provincial had his religious associates would not risk bringing this matter to the Protestant ministers of Texas by trying to seize me. After contacting a number of ministers and discussing my plight with them, I moved to Houston, a more Protestant-dominated city than San Antonio, which is about 60% Roman Catholic. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca 
CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Music